Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick in roughly the order of publication. And in this episode, I'll be continuing my series on Philip K. Dick's 1960 novel, Dr. Futurity. Now, if you're reading Philip K. Dick's works chronologically, you're going to immediately notice that Dr. Futurity is a bit of a throwback. It feels like some of his earlier works and some of his earlier earlier novels, especially in the fact that it's dealing with a dystopia, it's dealing with a particular social setting. And in this sense, it seems much more like works such as The World Jones Made or The Solar Lottery or The Man Who Japed. And there's a good reason for this. Uh, Dr. Futurity was originally written in 1953, and it was not published till 1960. So what's going on here with the chronology? Well, this was obviously a work that Dick had written before, but hadn't got published for whatever reason. I'm not quite sure the reason for this, but um, you know he had published stronger works uh, before this point, such as, I think, certainly The World Jones Made and Time Out of Joint Eye in the Sky. And in fact, he'd been really interested in the late 50s in this question of shifting realities and what is real and the nature of reality. And he had different thought experiments on uh, exploring this issue, such as, you know, is it due to individual subjectivity? Is it due to cosmic intervention? Or is it due to really political machinations as in time out of joint? And then he's going to take this all to the meta level in The Man in the High Castle. So this doesn't real this novel, Dr. Futurity, doesn't really extend this question of what is real. It doesn't add to that in any way. It's really much more about what kind of weird society can I establish? What kind of weird rules can I apply? And how is that going to affect people's lives? And in that sense, it's more, much more of a political or sociological thought experiment than one, a metaphysical one. All right. So, but why does this appear now? Well, you know, he published it after, after it has sitting on the shelf for, for seven years or so. Well, what, in, in one thing that's going on is that Dick has has basically at this point in his career thought seriously about turning away from writing science fiction. He published The Time Out of Joint in 1959, and then he publishes The Man in the High Castle in 1962. So there's a three-year period where he hasn't published any science fiction, and The Man in the High Castle is not really, you know, not quite science fiction in a lot of ways. It's it's more kind of an alternate historical, uh, kind of an alternate history book. Yeah, yeah, that's common in speculative fiction, but it's not quite like the novels Time Out of Joint or Eye in the Sky in the sense of being serious science fiction. Well, what was um, Dick doing at this time? Well, mostly he was writing in, you know, in the late, in the early 60s. He was trying to write mainstream um, fiction. And some of these novels are now all published. Some have been lost, but these are novels basically about regular people in suburbia and their marital problems and the things that go on in their life. One of these would be published in his lifetime, uh, called The Confession of the Crap Artist. Others, like The Man Whose Teeth Were All Exactly Like and The Broken Bubble, these would be published after after he died, mostly, and after his name, he became a little more famous. So he's working on that, and you know he's basically not doing much of science fiction. So this was, I don't know if this was a placeholder for, for Dick, maybe someone who knows more about the biography of Dick's publications can clue me in. 
This seems like something he sent to the publishers to appease them while he's kind of shifting his career and failing to really make a break in mainstream conventional fiction writing. Now, that said, this is a work that's often put alongside another work he published in 1960, Vulcan's Hammer, as some of his worst works. Um, and I can see the criticism. I, I still think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in both Dr. Futurity and, to a lesser degree, Vulcan's Hammer, in the sense that they're really about social relations and they're about politics and they're about power and they're about how people are used and misused and judged and 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 you know how society deals with individuals so it's a bit more of this kind of old anarchist story of the individual versus the institution which is something i think often gets neglected when people focus so much on the metaphysical aspects of dick's writing so that, that's sort of my very brief defense of Dr. Futurity. I'll get more into a thematic play-by-play of what his works are about in, in future episodes. I think I'll do about four on this novel. I've already done one, so I urge you to go back and listen to that episode uh, before jumping into this one. But anyways, um, early in this novel, in the first few chapters, we meet our character who is a doctor. Um, he's the titular Dr. Futurity. His name is Jim Parsons, and he's just driving home one day, and he has kind of one one metaphysical kind of play play that Dick has in this novel. He sort of days dreams while commuting home in an automated car. And then there's a car accident, and he suddenly wakes up 500 years into the future. So the novel is originally set the early 21st century, I think. And then he wakes up like sometime in the 25th century. So it's a little bit less than 500 years. He wakes up and the, immediately he learns that this world is strange. Um, one thing is that when he was kind of wandering onto the street, disoriented, a car tried to hit him on purpose. It didn't, it wasn't like an accidental thing. And at the last minute, he's able to get out of the way and he gets, picks, gets a ride with this, this young man. And he learns very, very quickly that the language here is all polyglot. It's all amalgamated. And racially, the people in the future are all amalgamated. There aren't really clear racial distinctions. Everyone is is mixed race in some way. And so now this was not an uncommon predictor. In fact, I was just reviewing the works of Charles Chestnut. And he predicts, he's predicting an early 20th century. He's predicting that the future of America will be a racial amalgamated society. But what we don't have are then racial and ethnic divisions. It's all mixed into one one thing. But what we do have is that artificial tribes are formed and people join these different tribes. It's not really clear why people join different tribes, but they're kind of in these arbitrary tribes, often associated with, with different animals and things. And even, you know, think like, well, the eagle, the eagle tribe will have the characteristics of an eagle, right? Or the tiger clan will have characters of a tiger, but it's not. It's, it's just really arbitrary. It's almost like teams picked in high school, high school gym class. Um, anyways, he goes what, early on. His his he's there and he sees a woman. There's basically a tribal conflict, um, and a group called the Shupu attack a tribe he runs into, and a woman is killed or, or fatally injured during this attack. And then he immediately wants to save her, but everyone else says we need to have the local euthaner, and her name's Akara, and he tries to save her life. And he does save her life using his medical knowledge, and everyone is horrified by that. She is then, uh, well, she after she's say her life is saved, she asks to actually be killed, and so they eventually call the the euthaner, and she's she's killed. But what Parsons did at this point was really commit a grave offense against 
the society um, by letting her live, right? So it's almost like a death cult. This person starts to learn that they don't value medicine. And this is a real problem for the character because uh, he, in fact, when he goes to the future, he takes it all in stride. He doesn't really think much of it. He says, well, I'll learn the language. I'll figure it out. And everyone needs a doctor, right? Well, he's in the worst possible period of time because in this world, no one wants a doctor. People, when they get sick, when they get injured, they just end their life. So he gets arrested for this. And then he's, he talks to a, a man, a young man. With, everyone is young in this society, which is a topic we'll get to in the future. But he talks to this person, Stenog, and he explains the tribes that were committed against their polity. It's called the United Tribes. Parsons thinks the society is insane, but uh, basically this is a society that worships death or doesn't see death as a bad thing. It doesn't see value in saving life. And but then they have to what to do about this guy because he committed this great sin that seems to be punishable by by death, but he he didn't really know. So but they have to punish him in some way. So they basically said he'll be sent to a prison colony instead of being quote unquote rehabilitated. And this guy Stenag says, you know, you're gonna have to go. So that's sort of where the story left off. So a lot happens in the first day that Parsons is in the future, but it basically revolves around a big social faux pas he commits, and that is based on saving the life of a, of a young woman. And so that's the first four chapters of this relatively short novel. So we're going to pick up here with chapter five and look at what, what happens in, this, in the second quarter of this novel. In chapter five, instead of being taken straight to these awful colonies and we're reminded of something that Dick does a lot in his early works is to create this stark distinction between the off-world colonies whether on the moon or Ganymede or some other place and life on earth um, he's very much interested in the frontier in this point of his life he's a California writer he's certainly feeding into the wild west and westerns but he's he's fascinated by this idea of cultural distinction between the core and the periphery and he often finds the periphery a place where people can be a little bit more free or where people who can't fit in go or where there's a little more social experimentation. And he does this in stories like um, Souvenir. He does it in novels like The World Jones Made and even in Time Out of Joint where this manifests into a war over whether humans will expand into the frontier or not. So in, before being sent off, he actually, Stenog, this guy who's been told him he's going to be punished, basically takes them around and shows them a bit more about the world that he now lives in and kind of giving them some of the rules. It's, it's for our benefit as well, but, you know, in a sense, they're trying, he's trying to explain to Parsons what kind of world he lives in and what the rules of the society are. He takes them past a place he works called The Fountain. This is where Stenog works. This is the location of a thing called the Soul Cube, and it's, it's kind of the governmental center. It's the kind of the political center of, of this world. Stenog is the director of the fountain, so we learn his position. Now, everyone is young in the society, which is an important point. That's, and partially it's because people don't value saving lives. So a lot of people just die by accident early in their life. And, you know, there's not life, you know, extending technologies, really. It's the opposite. In fact, it's, it's almost like this novel is the negative reflection of another novel he writes. I think it's in 1964, 1965, called... Um, Crack in Space, which is about a society run by old people who don't die because of life-extending technology. So basically, Stenex, you know, decides to welcome him into his home. He's going to have to await emigration to the colonies. I think it's Mars he's going to go to. 
So he invites him to dinner, and after dinner, he invites Parsons to the fountain in order to explain how their society works to him. And Parsons thinks that this society is completely obsessed with death, and Stenek says, no, no, we're a society that's respectful and honoring and celebrating life. And he shows him the soul cube, and the soul cube is revealed to be alive. It's filled with a, a standard steady number of zygotes. And the population of the Earth is kept stable at 2.7 billion. Everyone is born on purpose. Um, and there's a bit of eugenics going on here because it's, the, the zygotes are carefully chosen to be the strongest, the healthiest, and things like that. Um, the genetic material making up the zygotes is taken from the tribes that have been most successful in these competitions, these violent competitions they're having. So we have a very much a social Darwinian framework actually institutionalized in the soul cube. The tribes that are most successful in the games and in their social competitions out there then provide their DNA to be reproduced. And that's going to be the next generation uh, of humans. So there's a lot at stake in these in these competitions, um, not so much for individual paternity, but for kind of the uplifting and, and expansion of society. But one result of this is there's a lot of violence in society and a lot of early deaths that kind of cross that off. So it's... It's kind of a, it's kind of, I guess what Dick is trying to do here is saying, what if we just take the logic of social Darwinism and institutionalize it in kind of a social order? What, what might we get? And this is one possibility of what we might get. So of the winning tribes, the most successful competitors have their gametes, their genetic material harvested, and then these embryos are created, and then they're put into the soul cube. All reproduction takes place through the system, and from the soul cube. And it's something that he alludes to a little bit here, but I think it's not dealt with directly, um, maybe because of the audience, maybe because he was just trying not to be too lured about this. Um, Dick could be lured from time to time, but we could basically have to compare this to other science fiction works that play with this idea. If reproduction is taken out of individual's choice, right? something like in Brave New World is a good example of this, in a society where reproduction is not, like relationships and sexuality is not associated with reproduction at all, you're going to then have the assumption that there's going to be a more liberated sexuality, right? Because there's not one of the, re, one of the kind of the barriers to um, premarital sex, for instance, or this idea that sex should be confined to marriage is paternity, right? This is the big concern. And people like um, Christopher Ryan, who wrote the book Sex at Dawn, or co-wrote it, I guess, has argued at length that the origin of the family is really about paternity. Well, paternity is not an issue in this society because all paternity is done through the state. And therefore, you know, there doesn't need to be a reason to regulate sexuality uh, out in society. Um, but then on the other side of it, you don't reproduce because you're the most charming or you're the most handsome or you're the best lover or the best husband or how, you know, best wife, the normal ways in coupling societies, we, we reproduce. You, you reproduce by being the most successful in battle, in, in, in competition, by winning these competitions. So, you know, that's that's how people's, I guess, reproductive potentiality is is, is manifest. So, all re again, all reproduction is taking place through this system and from the soul cube. So what this does is it ensures, at least in theory, that society is constantly improving, at least in terms of military prowess and in competition and skill. 
Each time someone dies, a superior zygote is then drawn from the soul cube, taking the deceased person's place in the tribe. And so there's a kind of a balance. Everything is sort of socially planned. Each tribe has a certain number of people. People are put into the tribe based on birth to replace ones who died. And that, that's how this society works. It's got the stable population. But the idea is that it's going to constantly improve because each new generation zygotes will be improved. Um, now, Parsons considers the ramifications of this for society. Stenog feels that this is more honest because it acknowledges and faces death. And in this sense, it's a society that can honor and celebrate life because it understands death is the end of the stage. It doesn't try to avoid it. Parsons' culture and his profession, in fact, I think Dick is clever here to choose a doctor, someone who, you know, presumably made the Hippocratic Oath, someone who thinks it's his duty to preserve and, and extend life. He's in a society that doesn't value those things. Right. In fact, Parsons' culture is, is all about an attempt to evade death, the exact opposite of, of this world they live in. Now, Stenog believes their society is more perfectly planned because it takes into account the inevitability of death. Stenog implies that some people are resisting the society, though, and that they may be responsible for Parsons' arrival. Now, back at the house, Stenog's Puella. Now, this is the this is basically, his, I guess we could say a wife, but it's not it's short of marriage there's not really marriages in society but there are formal relationships that people can get engaged into basically they're they're flexible not you know monogamies i guess um so there's not really marriages but there's a thing called puella p-u-e-l-l-a and dick is not going to stop being fascinated by alternative ways of coupling and arranging marriages especially in a novel called the gay masters of, of titan where marriages are basically traded alongside, alongside property in a grand game that's played. So anyways, Stenog's Puella is a woman named Amy, and she places, plays some pieces of music for Parsons. And something we learned earlier in the novel is that actually this is quite a musically literate society. The people in the tribes like music. And, I, I you know, this is, even in Time Out of Joint, Dick gave kind of these weird tribes people these youthful ruffians kind of living in tribes on the surface of earth gave them musical ability. So he's, you know, he thinks that there's, he's kind of associating, I think like a lack of, or the kind of tribal arrangement with musical creativity. I don't quite know why. But anyways, Amy plays some pieces of music for Parsons and they enjoy some bourbon and, and they have a, a basically a nice night before Parsons is going to be shipped off to the colonies. Stenog then offers Amy to Parsons for the night, kind of a sexual trade. Um, but when he learns that Parsons hasn't been sterilized, he recants. And so this is kind of another side. We, we Again, it's basically proven at this point that these Puellas are not monogamous, that sexual relations are very fluid in this world because sexuality has been detached from reproduction. But Parsons has not been sterilized, therefore he kind of throw he can't have sex with people because that's going to disrupt this very stable order they have. And then he basically is recommitted to the fact that Mars is really the best place for Parsons. He's really not going to be able to make it here on Earth. So the next day, it's at four in the morning, Stenig is woken up, woken up by some strange men who then escort him immediately to a ship. In the ship, he sees a large machine running from a rat's brain. 
Stenai explains to Parsons that the trip to Mars will take 75 minutes. It's a very quick trip. They have the technology to do this. So after the ship takes off, though, the machine explains that the ship will detonate if anything is tampered with. The ship gets closer to Mars, but eventually is diverted. An hour later, the machine, thinking the ship is ready to land, it's been successfully tricked, hacked in some way, to think that they're about to land. It announces their arrival on Mars, but in fact, they've been redirected in some way. Parsons puts on some protective gear as the doors open into the void of space. And he, at the last moment, he's able to get on the suit. So it's kind of a little bit of an action scene where he, as he realizes the doors are going to open. So he puts on this gear and the doors open. And then later on, the ship preps itself for voyage because, again, it thinks it's on Mars. So it's preparing itself for another shuttle voyage. And then it goes off again. And after another 75 minutes, the ship arrives at an object in space. And this time the ship doors open and two men welcome him explaining that they could not get to him on Earth, but they, they could get to him in space. Ashupo then kills the two men, but dies in the process. Leaving three dead men on the ship, Parsons leaps out of the police, uh, the police ship, riding a cable towards the ship that presumably was, was there to rescue him, the rescue ship. So he's a bit confused about who's going on, what's going on. There's this conflict between these men who tried to rescue him and kind of the police forces, the, the Shupu. So, um, but alone on the ship, Parsons experiments with the controls. He eventually is able to land on a red planet that he assumes is Mars. And on the planet's surface, Parsons finds no signs of life and only extended desert. Eventually, he notices an upright marker on which is engraved his name. On the slab are instructions of how to run the ship. Looking at the sky, he realizes that, that the moon orbiting the planet is Luna, is the moon. And that, therefore, he must be on Earth in the distant future. Following the instructions, Parsons uses the ship, which takes him back in time to the period when Earth was still lush and green. So what, instead of, he thought he's been traveling to, to Mars on the ship, but actually, somehow it got hacked and became a, trime, a time machine temporarily, and it took him into the far future. He's able to use it then to go back in time to a point where Earth is lush and green. Not really clear when or you know where, what, what time he's in. Within moments, though, he returns to the future time that he was brought to. So he's eventually able to get to his starting point, I guess, if you want to think of it that way. He's welcomed by a man and a woman. The woman is very beautiful, and he... Now, he recognizes her, actually. He's, she was the mother superior of the Soul Cube, so he actually bumped into her before but didn't really meet her. Her name's Loris. Now, Loris and a man named Helmar welcome Parsons to the Lodge. And he's told that the Lodge has been active for 300 years. And this is the major force of resistance that Stenog had referred to earlier in the story. They ask which of, which of the loudspeaker markers he followed to return to their time. And Parsons just says that he followed the instructions on the plaque. This surprises everyone since they did not leave any physical instructions in the far future. So we have a bit of a mystery here. And that is how he was able to get back to his time and the fact that he was given instructions on how to return to his time, but not by this group. Someone had left these instructions for him to follow at some point in the distant future. Parson is then told that he's been brought back to the, or not brought back, brought, brought to the future to help the members of the lodge. And these are all members of the wolf tribe. They're actually associated with one of these tribes of, of the United Tribes. 
basically they want his medical expertise they they have a medical problem so they they get who they think is the best doctor from an earlier time period and there they present him with this medical problem the wolf lodge has managed to master time travel using government technology however as far as they know the government has not mastered time travel themselves they're still using time travel to attempt to achieve their political goals as well as to bring relics back from from the past to their own time and this is something dick had done a lot in his short stories with like time scoops time travel machines that could just like observe past events or sometimes a view um, observe future events or sometimes take things out like in paycheck you have this ability to grab things from other time periods but people don't necessarily go back in time so the government is kind of that far but they haven't yet mastered human time travel yet but this wolf tribe the lodge has done this Laura says that they're all opposed to this society, that they they agree with Parsons. That's become a death cult. It's become obsessed with death. It doesn't have a true future into the stars, right? So again, we kind of have the frontier motif appearing in this story. And this is something Dick explores in The World Jones Made, where you have scientists trying to create a new population of of Venusians who can live on Venus. You have Jones himself who thinks humans have to strive out into you know, on a great voyage of exploration. You have in Solar Lottery, you have a population of people who think we have to go and find the 10th the planet of the solar system. We have in Time of Joint, the lunatics, the people who live on the moon who think we have to go out into space and, and are willing to fight a war, a nuclear war, to achieve that right. They think it's that crucial to the existence of humanity. So this is something Dick comes back to a lot. And it's something I think that really needs to be considered and understood and fully interpreted you know, by people who specialize in, in Philip K. Dick. Laura, now, Laurie's argument, Loris's argument, sorry, not Laurie, Loris's argument, is that as long as the population is kept stable, the other planets aren't really necessary. So population growth be, created the need for people to go off into the stars. But with the stable population on Earth, other planets can only be used for exploitation or as prison colonies or as adjuncts of state power rather than real centers of cultural innovation and kind of the place for the new generation to make itself known. This culture developed from... Now, the culture, the death cult, the, the culture, although it's racially amalgamated is told there he's told by the wolf tribe that the culture on earth is really euro-american society a development of white colonialism of the new world and the logic flows from that and you know certainly there are the associations between uh social darwinism and racial theory in the early 20th century so dick's not totally off base here and i think associating kind of the social darwinian model with white colonialism but you know on the other hand you too do have manifest destiny and that ties up into the american conquest of the west and that wasn't based on the idea of a static population but anyways they make the case that that this really like the origin of this whole death cult this culture of of that they live in is based on white colonization of the new world that this is the original sin that led to this culture the wolf tribe is actually most interested in the 16th century conquest and they want to use time travel to maybe go back and stop it they see the beginning of 500 years of white domination that didn't end 
until Parsons' own generation, but still directs the character of global society. Now, it's not fully explained in this chapter at all, but the basic idea is that, you know, Parsons' generation was kind of the last of really the dominant of Euro-American civilization, right? But nevertheless, kind of the founding genetic, the founding memes of that culture are still there and still driving this, this society. So to really truly liberate people from this world, it's going to be, you have to kind of go back and change that. So we get this idea that maybe it's possible to then go back in time and stop European colonialism and maybe change the whole course of, of human history. Parsons, though, has been specifically brought to, is specifically brought to a replica of the soul cube, which holds a single human in stasis. Loris, um, basically, well, Loris tells him that, or shows him that this man has been killed with an arrow through his chest, and that essentially his job in the future is to save this man's life. Now, Parsons asks her, "Is was this man your husband? And she says, oh, no, we have no husbands. Parsons persisted. You had an emotional relationship? He was your lover? No, no, not my lover. Her whole body swayed, trembled as she rubbed her foreheads and turned away quickly. Although we have lovers, of course, quite a few, sexual activity continues independent of reproduction. End quote. So even though this wolf tribe, this wolf lodge is focused on on creating a society a frontier society that can cultivate social progress i guess and and escape this what she sees as the death cult they still feed into some aspects of the society like the the non-monogamy and the the de decoupling of reproduction and sexuality but really the key point here is this the importance of the 16th century uh, in world history, according to this Wolf Lodge. So he asks, why are you interested in, in 16th century explorers? Laura said, you'll learn about that in due time. The point which I mean to stress is this, despite the morbid strain in the society, there's no reason to expect it to expire or decline from its own imbalances. Having looked ahead, we can see that there's a life expectancy for it for several centuries. We share your aversion to its dynamics, but... She shrugged. We're more stoic about it, as you will be finally. Rome, Parsons thought, didn't decline in a day. What about my own society, he said. It depends on your identity as an authentic values of your society. Some, of course, still survive and may always survive. The superiority of the white nations, Russia, Europe, and North American democracies lasted about a century after your time. Then Asia and Africa emerged as dominant areas, with the so-called color races acquiring the rightful heritage. Helmer said, in the wars of the 23rd century, all races blended together, you understand. So from that time on, it was not meaningful to speak of the white or colored races. I see, Parsons said. But the appearance of the soul cube and the tribes. That, of course, Laura said, was not connected with the blending of several races. The division of the tribes is purely artificial, as you probably concluded. It stems from a 23rd century innovation, a great worldwide competition along the Olympic lines, but with the victors becoming eligible for national office. At that time, there were still nations, and the participants at first came from representatives of, the of their nations. The Communist Youth Festivals, Helmer said, were one of the historic sources of the custom, and of course the medieval jousts, Laura said. But the principal origin of the soul cube, the plan manipulation of zygotes, doesn't lie in any source that you'd be aware of. Facing Parsons, her eyes intense, she said, you must understand that for centuries the colored races of the world had been told they were inferior, that they couldn't control their destiny. 
there is in all of us this lingering sense that we have to prove we're better, prove we're able to construct a society in a population far more, far more advanced than any seen in the past. Helmer said, we made our point, but we've achieved a calcified society that spends its time meditating about death. It has no plans, no direction, no desire for growth. Our nagging sense of inferiority has betrayed us. It made us expel our energies in recovering our pride, improving our ancient enemies false. Like the Egyptian society, death and life so interwoven that the world has become a cemetery and that the people nothing more than custodians living among the bones of the dead. They are literally the pre-dead in their minds. And this great heritage has been frittered away. Think what we have become. He broke off his face. Study a conf uh, of conflicting emotions. So that that's about two pages of, of the book. Um, and... It's really crucial to what Dick's trying to get at here. I'm not sure he's entirely consistent or he's fully thought this out, but there's really something quite fascinating in this tension between his vision of what's going to happen to white colonial society and the decline of Europe and the rise of Asia and Africa. Uh, again, something that was predicted, predicted by others. I mean, Marcus Garvey talked about the rise of, of Africa. And certainly today we see the rise of, of China and of Asian societies in the world economy and, and, and world politics. So that's all that's all there. But he also sees this that so much of this reaction to white colonialism was based on war and competition and proving oneself that it kind of infected and created an inauthentic independence and independence based on competitiveness. And that's how white civilization still kind of overhangs this world. It's actually I think Dick is on to something here. It's actually a theme I wish he would have explored a little bit more. Um, than this just this novel because I think he has something to say here and had he just put a little bit more effort into clarifying what he's trying to get at I think it would have been he really could have been on to something interesting I think um, maybe he does a little bit in The Man in the High Castle with this idea of you know what would the world look like what would the world look like if Japan had won World War II but you know that's that's kind of a stretch it's really something he just plays with here and doesn't really come back to um, but I'm going to leave it with that at this point. I, I think in this, we're about halfway through the novel now. and so. But in this part of the story, what's really important is this, I guess, the relationship between sexuality and reproduction and how that's been disrupted and the consequence being the lack of marriage and the kind of a culture of non-monogamy because there's really no social need to regulate sexuality because there's no, that's not how babies come, that's not where babies come from anymore. And then there's this, the beginning of this question of what is the root cause of this? You know, you know, although we have a racially amalgamated society and it seems that Europe has declined, you know, the roots of this culture are still somewhat in, based on a reaction to white colonialism. And so people, as you know, in the 25th century are still thinking about the 16th century and the Spanish conquest of the new world. Um, so we're going to have more to say about this in the, in this upcoming episodes on this novel, but I'm going to stop now and, and I'll just, I'll be back next time with a little bit more of Dr. Futurity. So if you, um, have any of your own comments about this theme, how did you, if you read Dr. Futurity, how did you make sense of, of this tension and, and what Dick's trying to say here about colonialism? I'd love to have your point, hear your point of view about that. Uh, you can, just leave a comment below, or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. But if not, I'll be back next time with part three of my review of Dr. Futurity. Thanks for listening.
that living dies, that living dies. Till